Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Mike the Gardener podcast, sponsored by those lovely people at Natural Grower, who supply plant-based products for both organic and chemical-free gardening and your houseplants. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Mike the Gardener Gardening Podcast. The one thing I absolutely love about doing this podcast is getting the opportunity to talk to some fascinating people within this wonderful world of gardening and horticulture. It's also wonderful to get out and see some amazing gardens. Today, lucky me, I managed to kill two birds with one stone as I went off to London to meet gardener, broadcaster, podcaster and lots more, Chris Collins at the spectacular Kew Gardens where he once worked. As you'll hear in this episode, Chris is an extremely passionate plantsman and gardener who's travelled across the world and has some fascinating stories to tell about his exploits in Brighton, Scotland, Cameroon and Japan. He also tells us about his time as a gardener with the iconic British TV programme Blue Peter. Sitting in the South Arboretum at the edge of Kew, on the banks of the River Thames, with the London Heathrow flight path overhead, as you'll hear, I started our chat by asking Chris what his connection to Kew Gardens is. My connection goes back quite a way because I originally I used to play football against him when I was at Edinburgh Botanic Gardens, so there was a bit of rivalry originally, but then I obviously came to work here and we're sat in the South Arboretum, um, which is the area I used to sort of um, work in. And a lot of tree plants in here. We're right on the River Thames. It's a very beautiful spot, wouldn't you? And, uh, it's, it's lovely here. What's what's the building across? I, think, from... I don't know what that is. I, should know, I, should know. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I look at it and I go, why has it got a, a, a lion on the top of it? And, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how many, when did you come here? What first was the first so year you I, came? I came here, I'd been overseas for quite a few years and I came back and um, this was the first job I took when I got back, basically. So. Uh, and back is from? From Japan. I came back from Japan. Yeah, okay, we'll so touch on that from, later. Yeah. I came back from Japan and um, it was quite difficult to to get a job at first. I mean, you you know, you come back, you have to culturally adapt or whatever. And it's a botanic garden, which I've worked in quite a few of them, seemed to save sanctuary to me in a way. So I'm more at home here amongst plant collections than I am anything else. You know? So what was your job when you came back here and how did the job come about? Well, the job came about, it was a higher botanical horticulturalist, so I was helping out the supervisor, basically. So there's about eight of us. So you get segregated into areas. There's a beautiful Japanese gateway. I used to work on that. There's a new, uh, the old woodland garden behind us, the conifer garden. So mainly you were doing husbandry on existing plants, but you're also doing a lot of um, planning for future plants. So there's a lot of trees here that I've planted, which I, 20 years later, I still visit. So yeah, it was garden development and obviously assessing and making sure you took care of the collection. I did, a, I set up a big Caprifoliaceae, a Philadelphia collection, Philadelphia collection, which is over in this corner there. And uh, so little things like that really, yeah. So you mentioned earlier on the walk in here, you're a big fan of conifers as well. And there's obviously some beautiful conifer specimens here. Where did the love of conifers come from? Well, it started a long time ago because when I apprenticed, the conifers were quite popular. We grew a lot of them. When I was at Edinburgh Botanics, there was a lot of conifer experts there. I mean, it's such a diverse range of plants. I think it got bad press, didn't it? Because of Caprissi and all the bad yeah. hedge. And, and, um, but I, always, I, I really love them. I think that people say they don't change, but actually their changes are much subtler. So if you have a deciduous tree, you kind of get spring and then you get summer and then it autumn and you get these real sort of markers. Whereas conifers are, you have to look a lot closer at them. Yeah. You know, and I, um, Cryptomeria is a good example, Japonica. 
in Japan you get forests of it and it just goes from these greens to these browns and these but you need to kind of look at them and I quite like that idea of of not just paying attention to a plant because it's in flower. Oh, the cherries are out. I'll look at a cherry. And then yeah. I'll forget about it the rest of the year. And conifers are um, a much more hands-on sort of plant, I suppose. So amongst the conifer family, do you have any particular favourites? You've mentioned cryptomeria, but any other particular favourites? Well, the Suga I like. The Sugas I like. The Japanese sort of forests. Um, I love sequoia dendrons, you know. And my favourite story, one of the reasons I love them is... Um, is uh, Douglas, you know, who yeah, yeah. played the Douglas fir, and yeah. he, and he um, <laughs> you like this story. He climbed one in, in uh, North America, I think on the Canadian border, during a hurricane. So he went up this huge tree and he strapped himself in, and I, 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 put, I repeated that in Japan during a hurricane. Oh, really? In, in a hurricane? A la- in the top of a larynx, yeah. <laughs> and I could have died, to be honest with you, but it was worth it. <laughs> how, how long were you up there for? I was up there, it was interesting, because we all, all the family went to bed. And I got up in the middle of the night and climbed this tree, and I was up there about an hour and a half. And then I went back to bed, um, quite relieved I was still in one piece. And then we all got up in the morning. They said, "How did you sleep last night?" And I, I slept like Douglas. <laughs> did they? Did they know you had intended to do that? They had no they... idea <laughs> to this day. They'd... And it just kind of that that um, you know being a plants person, that kind of really kind of personal engagement in plants, I just find fascinating. Let me take you back to your early days. Where did this love of gardening come from? Well, it's an interesting story in a way, as I, I never set out to be a gardener. I, you know, I, I had a quite rough t- uh, teenage years. They weren't the best. But I left school and home very early, and I went to the uh, careers office, like you do, and, I, and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't care what I do as long as I'm outside. But I think there had been a seed sown, to use a pun earlier, because I always grew house, plant, house plants. I used to grow plectranthus and spider plants, and they were always around. And a, an apprentice gardener came up, and I, I thought, oh, that, that sounds good. That sounds really good. So I went, and uh, talking to trees, I planted a Cornish elm the first two weeks I was there, and I've never looked back, really. I've never wanted to do anything else. So was there gardening in your family? Were you the first gardener, or was there a, a history? My great-granddad, they were all Brummies, my family, um, Lived uh, in Solly Hill or around that area, and he—I remember being a kid and going there, um, and he big rose grower, and the whole street was really. It was culturally um, very embedded, I think, especially in working class people. You had a good garden, and mm. you might not have had a big house, but you gardens, you know. And uh, so I remember that very, very clearly. I remember growing a little bit of veg with my mum when I was a kid. Um, but I think maybe it was born, my main reason for getting involved with it, I was born out of the fact that I didn't want, you know, the idea of working in an office or... Didn't or, appeal. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, at school, I was always the kid looking out the window. I, I just wanted to be outside. I wanted the wind on my cheeks, you know. That's kind of how I felt about it. So, excuse the J word coming up, where did your journey go from those school days? Where did you go next? Well, I went, The Apprentice was really interesting because, I mean, I probably say this to everyone I meet, but... I worked with the best gardeners there, you know, and it was very old. I mean, it's a different industry because it was very male working class. And I think that our industry is greatly improved by its diversity. There's a lot more women involved in it. And that's been, you know, leapt us on leaps and bounds. But those old guys, they, you know, the dad would have worked there, then the son would have joined. And it was very much that sort of lineage to it. And uh, But they were just amazing gardeners. Everything was done in-house. I kind of li- laugh a little bit about... Um, oh, we're going to be environmental. We, if a machine broke, we fixed it. All the compost was done, compost inside. Yeah. It's very amazing grounding, I think. And this was down in Brighton? This was Brighton Parks. It was a very a prestigious parks. And, so I, and what they did is they move you around. So people think gardening is one thing. It's so not. So you would do bedding, then you would do 
plantsmanship, propagation, you do groundsmanship. So you had this very diverse sort of range. And off the back of that, then I went to Edinburgh Botanics. I got my place at Edinburgh Botanic Gardens. Yeah, so from the bottom of the country to the top of the country. Yes, so I guess yes. you could patch your thermals I, and off you went. I tell you, mate, I, I, I didn't hear another Cockney accent up there. I used to say to the Scots, I went three million, went south and one came north. <laughs> that was always my cry. Oh, it's cold up there. But, they, but it, it, it went, you know... Um, it expanded. You, you, people just don't understand this, I think, a little bit about how how much horticulture covers. And I think, so you do your apprenticeship, you learn your trade, you know how to get on the tools, you know how to grow some. Then you go and suddenly you're surrounded by scientists or experts in pathology and entomology and botany and, and it just expands the whole thing out. And, you know, and plus you're amongst an amazing plant collection. So at that time when you are in Edinburgh, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you have an idea of a career? I suppose in a way, I mean, to be honest with you, even to this day, I always just wanted to work with plants. I never wanted to be a designer, to be honest with you. It's never appealed to me. I didn't want anything to be transitional. I, I love the idea of being amongst plants. But I kind of, what happens when you do something like Edinburgh Botanics, or maybe if there's any youngsters listening, you could go to Wisley and do a diploma or Q. You kind of open the world out. And so suddenly I had these opportunities I never would have dreamed of when I was an apprentice, when I left school, you know. And so you can go abroad, you can, you know. So my, my, what I saw it as was an opportunity to fill my boots, really, to go and be a gardener in, in places I never thought I'd ever get a chance to be a gardener. And how long were you at Edinburgh? Three-year course, yeah, three-year course, and the weather got to me, southern softy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and I loved it up there. I still go up to Edinburgh all the time. I've got big mates up there. But it, three years came, and then I got offered a job in Cameroon. So I, I like to look at it. I like to go and warm my bones up. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, how do you get offered a job in Cameroon when you're working in Edinburgh? How does that happen? <laughs> I know, it's bizarre, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, what happens is you, I did a, a, a dissertation, and this is a mouthful. I'll see if I can get it out, on the Limbay Botanic Garden and Mount Cameroon Genetic Conservation Project. That's, <laughs> That's easy for you so to say. After a few wines, no <laughs> chance. And what that was, was a mate of mine was, was a technician out there and I went to research a dissertation. So my dissertation at Edinburgh was on this subject. But as a result of that, I got on well with everybody. At the end of my course, they offered me an internship for nine, ten months as I went out a second time. Yeah. And so from Cameroon? What, what, where, where then? <laughs> Mate, I came home, back to Edinburgh, funnily enough, and I, and, I, and I was sitting in a bar called the Barony Bar. This is about three weeks later. Anyway, yeah, three weeks later, I was sitting in a bar called the Barony Bar. Very bar, a uh, very good bar if you're ever in Edinburgh. I had a lot of mates in there, and I sat at the bar, and a mate came in, he had a copy of the Scotsman. There's a little advert in it saying, Gardener wanted in Tokyo. This is about six weeks after I got back from Cameroon. I went, oh, in for a penny. Obviously, I was a single man then, so I put my CV in. And about eight weeks later, I was sat on a plane going to Japan. Oh my goodness me, this is almost unreal. It was, I remember sitting on the plane thinking, I'm going to Japan. What do I know about Japan? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and so what was the job? Well, it was really bizarre because they put me, originally it was a, for a company called Barakura. Most people might know here, we have a little garden up in the mountains in Nagano. But I was transferred to a shop in Tokyo, a Mitsukoshi, which is like the Harrods of Japan. So I was in this shop and I was thinking, well, how... I'm a gardener, what am I doing in a shop? But it was really interesting, so I kind of invented it, really. I did import-export of goods from the UK. I had balcony garden displays, which they led into design. I did loads of teaching. So I kind of built this selling British gardening, if you like. And the three of us went out there, and we were the first gardeners to, uh, to get visas to go and do it to go be a British gardener in Japan. The other two didn't last because culturally it's so different. So I'm quite proud that I went out there and flew the flag, really, yeah. And how were British gardeners perceived out in Japan? We, 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 you know, a lot better than we are here in lots of ways. Yeah. I hate to say it, but, you know, the skill level 
I mean, it's you've, little things like how to prune a rose and stuff like that. They're quite technical things, and you're mm. taught that really well here. And the, and the Japanese just love that. They lap that up. They, you're so well respected as a British gardener, and we are front runners in this in the in the world. And we don't sing enough about it, I don't think. And I, and I, I really came to terms with what British horticulture meant when I was in Japan because of the way I was treated and the way I was respected. Plus, I made them a lot of money, and that helps, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, they were obviously very happy <laughs> with you. You have some bizarre moments, Mike. I um. I uh, ran out of toothpaste one day and I went to get some toothpaste and and it, and it was like Colgate in there. Other brands are available. And uh, and it was like 10 quid because it all gets tariffed. I'm, like, I'm not buying that. And underneath there was another one with kanji. And uh, so I thought, that must be Japanese toothpaste. And I went home and brushed my teeth and turned out it was foot cream. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I never laughed and cried at the same time. And I went to work the next day shocked by this whole experience. And the Japanese staff, Tokyo especially, Tokyoites are very kind of flat they don't show their emotions very much they're quite yeah, you know yeah. and I, they were on the floor for about 10 minutes in laughter so it's the only time I truly cracked them up so you never suffered from verrucas in the mouth then obviously <laughs> no, no it's just bizarre <laughs> one of those moments where you think god I'm a long way from home you know it's kind of one of them yeah you mentioned balcony gardens yes. then now that's become particularly important for you now I guess I've had to garden in small spaces since I came to London. I mean, I think people don't realise half our urban spaces now, people don't have a garden, but I see space everywhere, and that kind of comes from Tokyo, because in Tokyo, sometimes I do a garden just two metres by two metres, and I became... Um, obsessed with this fact that you can garden in small spaces that it's no restriction and obviously you treat it as a cube not a flat space so you can garden up and use all that available space but I became astounded about what you can actually do with it as well there's a husbandry to it there's a technique to it but you aren't bound by space and I think sometimes you know you can watch Gardener's World and Monty's in his big garden good for him I'm not criticising him but it can come across to a lot of people that you need to be this certain lifestyle, this certain person to, this certain, yeah, very much so. You know, to be involved in this. Well, that's not true, and a lot of certainly a lot of my work now is is out and about telling people that. Yeah. So, for those of us who garden in smaller spaces, any sort of tips, particularly if you're sort of like gardening on a balcony, because there's no excuse not to garden. But how do you start? Well, I think definitely, um, I think you, you expect start with a few simple ideas, like a little one. I have a salad bar, okay. So I will have a trough and I and I sow in drills in rows a bit of pea shoot, a bit of rocket, a bit of cut and come again, and then I intersow in between, and that what means it perpetuates. So I can crop and then crop again. It's a really simple little idea. Yeah. Out on your balcony. I'm a big lover of hanging baskets. I know they're not trendy these days, but I potage them. I grow all my tomatoes in them, and I grow also my petunias in them as well. So I tend to really mix it up as much as possible. Start with one or two pots if you're nervous about it. Get going, have some success, and then go from there. But the big thing is just, it's a discipline. So when I get up in the morning in London, and I know I've got to get on tubes and trains, and that's probably likely to wind me up, to be fair. (laughs) I have just 20 minutes out there. I look at every plant individually, every basket, every pot. I water it. I'm a big, big fan of seaweed extract for containers. Yeah, yeah. And then I move over to Bocking 14 Comfrey Pellet later in the year. But that day-to-day, just giving it that 20-minute, half-hour, get that discipline because what people will do is they'll plant something they'll have fun with it they'll look at it for a couple of weeks and then they'll forget about it and if you do that and you don't pay any attention to it for 10 days or whatever you're out the loop yeah yeah it's going to run away yeah 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 so in terms of your balcony we were talking earlier you you, and you have an allotment as well and you were talking how at this time of the year your allotment you can hold in the palm of your hand with a pile of seeds just love gardening don't you i mean last year because of the covid thing I, I, it just looked incredible, and what I tend to do is I grow 
my veg, and obviously I, I block grow it, I've sort of separated beds with paths and I rotate them around. But I started doing, I love hardy annuals, I'm a massive hardy annual fan, so I do little big corridors of hardy annuals all around those beds. So you have colour and the veg together. And it just, I mean, I, you put it all in, I sowed it all literally, I sow it indoors, it drives my wife's crackers. <laughs> <laughs> it does. So there's lots of stuff indoors, and I gradually harden it off. It goes down there. I sow a lot of stuff straight into the ground. By August, the whole thing is absolutely massive food and flour. And I kind of look at it and think exactly how you described. It. I think I could have held that in my hand. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, that is not. What is that if it's not a miracle? All of that. No, it's not just the, what to look at, what to eat, the, the well-being of my mind while I'm doing it. All this incredible payback I get. From that, that that handful of seeds, I find that incredible. Yeah, it's incredible to, as you say, a handful of seeds has got so much promise for the future. Uh, just incredible. So, Brighton, Edinburgh, Cameroon, Japan. <laughs> where next? Yeah, that's a good one. Obviously, I came. Uh, I went. Well, the big one, I suppose. I get. I still do a lot of talks on. Was my time as Westminster Abbey head gardener. Yeah. Now, how did that come about? What? And what a fantastic opportunity <laughs> that is. You know, I'm thinking sort of like royal wedding, state occasions way it's incredible so i after q i applied for that job and i got it and um i, I don't think there's anything as surreal as my time at westminster abbey i mean the first day i was there i was stood outside the abbey and margaret thatcher was stood next to me i mean that does not happen often does it and then you just kind of it's the royal church and we used to go to um uh, Jerusalem Chamber dinners. Jerusalem Chamber is like a 900-year-old chamber, and you eat with jolly gold knife and forks and crystal and all this. It's just another world. But it's also very one of the oldest gardens in the UK. Oh, I didn't realise yeah, that. So how old is the garden? 900 years old. It's incredible. And it was it was a, a monk's garden, and they would they would treat use it to treat people who were sick. So it was a herbary basically. Right, yeah. yeah. So there's all this medicinal background to it. Now it's like a town square, I suppose, a London mm, town yeah. square. So when I got there, it was. Um, it was depleted. No one had composted or anything like that. I bought 12,000 worms the first sort of month I was there. <laughs> An important buy. <laughs> of course you do. You like you do. And then I set up a greenhouse. And I kind of, I say this a lot in my talks, it, it, um, they had a little lean-to greenhouse that wasn't being used. And I was straight into that. Because a greenhouse is the, the biggest present you can give a gardener, isn't it? Absolutely. Really? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The very it, it, best. I've got one. That's why my front room's full of seeds, you see. <laughs> and, um, and, but I got that going. And I always, um, and I do everything from seed, a massive seed sower. And I kind of think the seeds and the, what they grow into are your paints and the gardens, your canvas. I really like looking at it. Yeah, that's a lovely analogy. I love looking at yeah. it that way. And so it, amongst all this incredible, um, this 900-year-old building, this really is quite hard to put into words working there. You're there to be a gardener and to improve it and, and crack it on. So I really enjoyed my, my Abbey times. And how big a space is the garden there? Well, it's kind of broke up. You've got like a couple of acres, I think, maybe in right in the centre of the town square. You've got a very, very expensive public school that runs along the side of Christopher Wren building. In fact, I mean, the whole place. And then behind you is Victoria Town from Parliament. And, you know, I was there three and a half years. And every day I went in, I went, you like. But there's also lots of little sections, little cloisters, little bits here, little bits there. So it kind of adds up to about seven acres. North uh, Green, which is the front bit where they have all the memorial during the World War II, World War II yeah. memorial. Well, that's an old graveyard, north facing. So you dig down a couple of foot and you start finding stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, stuff you don't want to find. Yeah, you're not going to find in any other garden. <laughs> this is very true. Yeah. Yeah. So state occasions and royal weddings, was that uh, there was there an impact yeah. on the gardens? I guess there must we, have been. We, you, you, it's an interesting place to work because you, I'm a big turf man as well. I'm, I'm being, and I did all my turf work organically. I'm building into a lot of um, scarification and getting it to tiller and all this sort of stuff. But in the summer, they just start throwing parties and the great and the good come. 
And what they turn up and trash it and no short word. <laughs> so you have to kind of start again, but it'd be really weird because you kind of go to work and then Prince Charles would be in there or there'd be celebrities. So you had this whole sort of festival of events, but they would put a lot of strain on the garden. So you'd almost work cyclically in this repair, I suppose. You'd come back and you'd, you'd start again in many ways. Yeah. So you, you touched on organic gardening there. Yeah. Um, head of horticulture at Garden yes. Organic. Yeah, I've been doing that for a while, yeah. Yeah, I do that part-time basis. I obviously have a business and they're part of that business, yeah. So how long have you been gardening organically? And obviously that a very important subject for all gardeners. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, well, I started at Westminster Abbey. I went in there and I, we were spraying the paths. And I, I'm, like I said, I'm a big turf man. And that's how it began, really. I used to use a little 22-inch mower with a, with a roller on it and nap mow it. So it, I'd do it in ripples out from a... And I thought, why am I putting all this... It was expensive, all this yeah. fertiliser down and stuff. And uh, So I thought, well, I know about plant physiology, right? So if you... Grass has stolons, which are underground stems. And if you snap that stolon, you get a new crown. So I put in this operation of... Uh, heavy scarification quite regular especially in the spring then I'd overseed it as well and I leave a long cut on it they call the rugby cut about two and a half centimetres and I realised I didn't need any of that and then am I organic then I started trying to grow out without peat that wasn't very successful back then because mm-hmm. obviously the, the technology's moved on yeah 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 but I kind of wanted to it came about that I think a garden is a shared space I didn't want to disrupt that shared space and I kind of think if you're spraying paths and stuff, I know it's less bird life. I know it's there was a, de- a, a decrease of, of nature in there. And then it just kind of went from there, really. And that's where, kind of where I fell in love with it. And of course, talking about pesticides, just recently we've had the announcement about the withdrawal of metaldehyde in slug yeah. pellets. Well, it's interesting because the thing is with pesticides, and uh, I understand... Well, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to go around the world shouting at people about this. If you run in a big grounds maintenance contract and the budget's tight, there are all sorts of... It's never... never it's grey, the world is grey. But if you use a, a slug pellet, you, there's 22 types of slug, most of them aren't a problem to you. Yeah. It's the indiscrimination of it I don't like. And I mentioned to you earlier about um, hardy annual pollinator borders, and I just love that. Being in a space full of plants, if it's got butterflies, bees, birds... I want all that in there. That's part of the experience. And and so, and obviously soil health is really important and I think that probably depletes that to a certain degree. And not to say also, there are organic pellets out there. You kind of know, it's not the end of the world. Absolutely, yeah. I I use organic pellets. uh, But because they look the same as the metaldehyde ones, I always find myself saying, these are organic. I really want to make that sort of, but of course the the metaldehyde ones are going to be on their way uh, from the 1st of April, I think, isn't it? Yes, I think, I mean, it's it's been coming a long time, I think. And also, I mean, even with the organic pellets, I kind of use them as a last resort if it if it's getting out of hand. I kind of like to use traps. I like to make physical gardening. I like just to remove as well. I just have a look at stuff. I like to make sure that the reason I grow indoors quite heavily at start, like I've got a lot of aubergine and peppers and stuff on the go at the moment. I like to get them up eight, nine leaf stage because the lignin gets into the cells. They're not as attractive to the slug and snail then. They want that really tender flesh stuff. And it, Actually, the slug and snail problem is... At its worst, this time of year, when you're just trying to bring stuff on, once stuff's up and growing, they'll have a nibble, but they're not going to destroy everything. Absolutely. I, I put dahlias out last year, far too early. Lush growth. <laughs> they'll um, have it, yeah. They were all taken they, down. But they'll recover. It's amazing. They yeah. will come back. So you look at it and go, oh, well, that's done. Look, they've eaten all... But actually... You know, plants are very adaptive. They can kind of get on with stuff. and uh, So I just kind of think it's not the end of the world if you lose a bit. I have more food on my allotment than I could ever eat. Yeah. My neighbours run away from me when I'm trying to give it away. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, I don't mind the fact, you know, my life, my, my being isn't dependent on that. So, you know, there's a few slugs there. 
then so be it. So Garden Organic, you also have a podcast. I mean, you're a guest on my podcast, yes. but you actually yeah, yeah. do the Organic Gardening podcast. How did that come about? Um, and what, well, we'll talk about broadcast experience yeah. in a moment. How did the podcast come about? Well, I think that, um, um, well, actually, I can't take any credit for this at all. Sarah Brown, who, who's part of Organic Garden Organic, She's the master behind it because she's the one, like a good self, who has to go away. <laughs> when I can talk for England, you know that, you can hear it. <laughs> and so it's easy for me to banter on. And, in, and I really love people. I love interviewing them a lot, especially gardeners, because they're always interesting people. And, uh, and so I like doing all that. But the real skill is taking it away, editing it, getting it into a format, introducing it. <laughs> so you're the person that's going to have to do that after that. So I think that I think uh, Garden Organic's podcast really came about through her. And I just go out and bat for the team, to be honest with you. So... Obviously, you're no newcomer to broadcasting, famously known as being the Blue Peter Gardener. How did that gig come about? And at that time, what broadcast experience did you have? That's just a really interesting story, really, in a way. It's one of those, like, I I believe in life, windows open sometimes, and you either look at them or you die for them. And I literally, well, I started off with a TV series on BBC Two called The Plantsman. Okay. Yeah, I was kind of plucked out of obscurity. It never went down that well. (laughs) But, you know, who gets to do that sort of thing? But how do you get plucked out of obscurity? Well, how did that happen? Literally, um, like all my jobs, I answered an advert in the Horticultural Week. Yeah, so I'm big out for the Horticultural Week. And, and I answered that, and they, they came and did a screenshot, and then they went away, and then they asked me for a portfolio a few weeks later, and they went away, and then it, about three months went by, and I forgot all about it, and then they came back and went, we want you to do this series. And then I... About a year went by. It's such a slow process, television. And then yeah. I'd shot the series, and it, I think it got a couple of million viewers. They deemed it weren't enough. It was quite controversial at the time. It was a very soft shot and a lot of music in it. Not your usual sort of garden. It's Friday Night Crew. Might have been better suited than other. But that side, put all that side, Blue Peter was born out of it. So what happened is Blue Peter, I used to do the Big Toe Radio show. Right. And then yeah. they heard that, and they said, come and do, a, come and do a, a, a test, a screen test. So I did the screen test. I did it with a little terrarium, a little rainforest terrarium uh, with the Blue Peter presenters. They aired it that night, and then, the, you know, nine years on, I, I did that for. So that little terrarium, was that your idea? Did you think, this is what I'm going to do for this screen test? Yes, or? Yeah, well, I, I, to, be, to be fair, I sold loads of them in Japan. They <laughs> 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 used to go like hotcakes, 120,000 yen a pop, mate. It's a lot of lolly. And, uh, yeah, so I did that because it was just something I was familiar with. And I, and then, you know, it was... You know, this week I've been in schools teaching kids out of garden. All of that has come out of that Blue Peter thing. I've never... I've had an amazing career, and as far as I'm concerned, that was my way of putting back. It's my return, if you like, because just the response for kids' gardening has just been incredible. You know, I remember I did a little bog garden in the corner, and like 5,000 kids, I think, or something ridiculous, wrote in, and they took photos of it, they copied it, yeah. and you just kind of get them really going. And, uh, you know, no one's more environmentally aware than children. You know, much better than adults, and uh, we can get them in. You know, then we we've got a better future. I know that's a cliche, and I know that's maybe over optimistic or whatever, but I really felt Blue Peter doing that Blue Peter gig was a great way to channel gardening to the next generation. I mean, as a kid, Blue Peter was iconic for me, and the Blue Peter gardener then was Percy Thrower. Yes, yeah. <laughs> were you were you aware of the impact of being the Blue Peter gardener would have on your career? Do you say a massive opportunity to put gardening in front of kids? It's to be honest with you, it'll be on my gravestone, Blue Peter. I'll never be able to escape it. It's that yeah. powerful. I mean, it's one of the most famous gardens ever, and uh, you know, so I kind of. 
Yeah, I went into it, probably not knowing what you just said. I probably went, oh, well, you know, I've got a gig here. This will be interesting, I, like most things I do. And um, But I did become aware of it, the power of it after a while, especially not just about me, the other four presenters. You had Matt Baker there and people like that, Connie Hart, who had this massive influence on our young people. And you kind yeah. of, it was like, it's a, it's, it was a momentum. The thing was like a juggernaut in a way. And, it was quite an amazing thing to be a part of, I think. That was quite quite interesting to be a part of. Now, I remember, casting my mind back, the Italian sunken garden. Well, I, yeah, well, I moved that, didn't I? And so you took that to, from London <laughs> yeah. to Birmingham. Oh, well, that was to Manchester. And I, to Manchester, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. There, was, there, was, oh, mate, oh, there was three of us. We dug it up. Um, I remember labelling it all, the slabs and everything, dug it up, moved it to Manchester and rebuilt it, did a half-hour telly programme in eight, day, eight days, and Percy Thrower took three months with eight guys to build it, and then the two guys who did it with me never worked for me again. <laughs> so when you say you were actually there labelling things, because I think there's this image that, oh, someone else will come in and do the job for you. Obviously, there was some help, or...? Yeah, yeah, yeah there, were, there were two guys that were... I'm hands-on. I don't, you know, I never... You, even when I did all the makeover shows for UK Style and stuff, and... You know, I'm a calloused man. I, <laughs> I can't just stand and watch. I, lo- I love being amongst it, you know. I love... And um, and also, I think now, especially in telly, the, because of budget, there's a lot less money in telly than there was when I joined it 20 years ago. Yeah. You, you, you wouldn't have a choice. If you're going you're gonna to make over something, you need to get stuck in. And, but I'm happy with that. I'm comfortable with that. So what what impact did it have on your career? I mean, obviously, you, you were known, but th- that must have been just a massive change for you. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, it was, I'm, I'm probably drifted off a bit now. I probably peaked because of the tennis stuff and drifted off a bit. But I think it's certainly the fact that the big thing was the fact that I, I've been involved in so many um, school campaigns, you know, through corporations, people who've got the money. So I, I've, I mean, I remember one year, um, 10 years ago or something around then, I think I did like 256 schools in one year, you know. Wow. So I was big on the road. I've done them from, I've done them in Germany, I've done them in Aberdeen, I've, you know, I've moved around really heavily and I've talked to thousands of kids and, yeah, so that, I never saw that coming, but the Blue Peter kind of created that and then it just became a momentum, I think, in a way. And it still goes on today. I've been in Yorkshire the last couple of days. You know, I did a, a Chris's Crazy Cresshead yesterday. So I had a load of five-year-olds all in stitches because we were doing these little, you know, little things like that still go on. And I, I uh, yeah, it's good. That's a good thing. A great opportunity to bring gardening to kids. How do we how do we keep that interest going though? Because I think sort of like the work that yeah. you're doing is fantastic. Going out to schools, I've seen your sort of like Instagram and your Twitter accounts. These kids with beaming faces. Yeah. But how do we keep that momentum going? Well, I suppose in a way, secondary school is the great horizon for horticulture, the great frontier, because we lack good gardeners. You know, we do. There's not many. You know, it's a, it's quite a poorly paid industry. It's, yeah. you know, people are material nowadays. They want this, they want that. We need to think about what you just said, about how we do that. I think it's not just a, gar- a question of horticulture. It's a question of how we, as a society, look at how we want to live, I think. I think the two things are married together. We, you need to be less material. But also think about, you know, we'll go right back to the start when I was parks. I think our amenity gardening was so much stronger then. Our town centres, the way, the money we spent as a society... It looked much better, and we've kind of let that go, let that go. Yeah. And, and I think that needs to be reversed, and I think then that will encourage those younger people to engage with it. L- little kids eight, nine are bang on with the environmental stuff and that, but how do what, when they get to 14, what happens then is what we need to think about. Yeah, that's, it's that sort of the m- momentum then, yes. and as you say, sort of like, well, 
my parents had said to me, you've ended up as a gardener. So there's still there's amongst a some people. To it. There's a stigma to it. You yeah. know, you, I was a wrong one when I was 15. I ended up a gardener. It's one of those, isn't it? And yeah. you kind of like, I, 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 I just think that as a, you know, as a society, when we, and also as an industry, I mean, people like the RHS and stuff, the big beasts, they kind of need to step up to say, what are we doing to get people into careers? And I know it's nice. I know I'm going to sound quite critical here. I know it's nice that we have flower shows and it's all oh, and it's wow or whatever. But out on the ground, foot soldiers is what we need to make it happen, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. We've touched on design um, and you self-professed you're not a designer, but yeah. you, you have designed though. I have, yes, yeah. I'm not sure how good I am. <laughs> well, I suppose you, you kind of get, you, I know what I'm doing with it. I put it this way, to me a garden is something you, 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 you grow. Like, so we took, it doesn't have to be over hundreds of years or a year, just an allotment over a season. But being a gardener to me is seeing that process. Being a designer, and this isn't a criticism, it's just what it is, is you take a kit and you assemble it and then you move on to the next one. That's kind of how what a designer yeah, does in many yeah. ways. And then maybe you get some maintenance people to look up. But I'm ne- I've never been interested in that. I'm interested in the process. I'm interested seed to plate, seed to flower, seed to bumblebee. That's the kind of bit I, I personally really enjoy. So we've got the Chelsea Flower Show, Malvern coming up just yes. on the horizon. When you go to those shows, I'm, I'm assuming you go to those yes, shows. Yeah, yeah. Where do you head to first? What's your go-to place? Well, Malvern, I'm doing. I'm the school champion again, so I'll be heading straight. I'll be with the children to begin with, but I do love things. I love the. I love veg. I love some of the veg displays and stuff like that. To be honest with you, the sort of show gardens are my last stop. Although I, I do enjoy them, I quite like. I like chatting to the people who grow. That's the people, you know. I like the the people who, who get up every day, and you know, for probably twelve hours. Especially at places like Chelsea, where yeah, you know, you'll get like a gladioli sort of. The people who do that are just, I mean, you look at anything how, <laughs> and the love and the care. I, I'm kind of very much into that process. I'm not taking anything away. Don't get me wrong. From designers and show, no, not at all. They're no. amazing things. Yeah. but I'm interested in the growing side of stuff. Yeah, the horticulture, the pure horticulture, really. So when it comes to growing and the horticultural side of things, you have your allotment, you have your balcony. What do you, what plant passions do you have? You've touched on conifers. Obviously, yeah. you don't get many conifers, I guess, on a, a balcony. But yeah. what are your plant passions? I suppose in a way it runs. It runs. It's, I'm, it's, I'm a contradiction on this really because I'm a big tree man. Obviously, I worked on the arbor and I've planted trees all over the shop. I can go around and find them from the first one I ever planted on Brighton Parks to. I mean, if I went back to Cameroon, I'd know where to go and find. I planted forests. I planted with um, trees for cities, you might know. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I planted a whole woodland in Bradford on a hill with them. And so that's quite... A How long, long ago was that? That would have been 10 years ago. I need to go and see it again. There's that longevity. I love that idea of longevity. If you think that a taxus or a yew can last a 1,000 years, or I love that idea of this, you know, like a, a corkscrew pine, 5,000 years. This... We think we're in the moment, but we're just such a speck, you know. What a fantastic legacy to go back and say, I've planted that forest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's a, just incredible. That's mind-blowing. Well, it's also that's quite, actually talking about how you get young people involved. That's quite good because it teaches them that longevity. And so, I, yeah, I'm very much I'm very much on... And not, you're not just planting trees. You're planting an ecosystem. You're planting a whole mm. little, you know, a whole little planet of its own. And I really love that. On the other side of it, I love the whole rush of a, an annual turnover from... Sowing my aubergines and my petunias and then the tomatoes and watching it all come to life. Again, back to that handful of seeds. Yeah, yeah. I love that, you know, that seasonal rush. And then, you know, I really do. So it's both ends of the coin, I suppose. Both sides of the coin, even. You're, you're clearly a busy guy. How much time do you actually get to spend on your own balcony and at the allotment to 
take time for yourself because that's really important. It is. I think all gardeners, we, we, we would not be gardeners if we didn't understand that. There is, and I, you know, I make no excuses for this. I am... Um, it's a spiritual experience for me being a gardener. It's, it's what my soul feeds off. I had, you know, experiences when I was a teenager that offset it even more, to be honest with you. I won't go into detail, but I kind of understand the night and day of it all, if you like. I'll do my 20 minutes on the balcony in the morning, and I do that for a certain easy reason, because it puts me in a good mood when I get on a tube and I don't feel like arguing with everyone. And just that 20 minutes just calms me down. My allotment, I would spend all my time on it if I could. It just depends how much time I've got. But I, yeah, I must do 20 hours a week on it at least, in between all the other stuff, if I if I want it to look good. Yeah. I, I take it you just don't sleep at night. It's <laughs> like a log. It's just until I get there. Really. Up a tree somewhere in a hurricane. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's good to be busy. It's good. I mean, I, I mean, you can probably tell I, I I really enjoy what I do. I love it. In fact, it's it's built into me. It's like me for a, st- a stick of rock, really. You could write gardener through me. Um, I just wish there's more time in the day. I think as we get older, maybe, I think those time, those moments on the allotment or in your private garden will become more important. And in a little way, I feel I might end up full circle. I mean, if I could go back to being a parks gardener again for the last five years, ten years of my career, I would do that. Unfortunately, like most horticulture, there's not enough wedge in it. <laughs> yeah, and again, that's one of the sort of like the downsides. It's trying to, because people do say it, 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 the pay isn't brilliant, yeah. and it's a, it's a shame. It really it's, is. It is a labour of love, and it's a false economy. I think. I mean, I watched um, the parks are a really dear thing to me, and I watched there in a way they decline, and I think it's a false economy because it, you know it, it, the, 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 what it puts back into the our society and and also if you neglect it then you get all sorts of other problems that need to be paid for and so i just think that we need to big up this beautiful subject of gardening far far more than we do particularly as a society it's got everything it educates people it team works you know like when we're walking i was chatting to you one minute i can be in a in a council estate in newcastle teaching kids the next minute i can be in windsor talking to a load of people who are from a different, completely different class to me and yeah. we all get on and I just think that it, it, it's underrated how it binds us together. And to be fair, your flower shows, etc. they're good things because hopefully that'll highlight that. You need that publicity, you know. And I just think we, we're underrated, Mike, I really do. Yeah, and we again, when we were walking here, we were talking about well-being and spirituality, which a lot of people talk about, but I think maybe as you... <laughs> I'm 100 years old, so <laughs> yeah. you really do appreciate time in the garden on your own? I, I think, you know, it's a great way to answer that question. I, I do this slideshow in assemblies. I just did the last couple of days in Yorkshire and I, one of the last slides I show is a moon window, which is like literally a hole in a wall, a window in a wall or a round circle in a wall. And I say to the kids, you know, okay, I've told you all this stuff about gardening. I went, but this is kind of a crucial bit. I went, we live in a world that's so noisy and loud and phones and, and especially people trying to sell you something. You're too fat, you're too thin, you ain't got the right clothes on. You're bombarded with this stuff. Sit by that moon window, look into the garden. After an hour or two hours, you'll notice more detail in the trees, the sky, you'll hear the birdsong clearer, and then you'll have your best ideas. And I just think if everybody stepped out like that and looked at a garden, I think their soul would benefit from it, benefit from it greatly. Absolutely. What's in the future for you? What what plans do you have? What are you working on at the moment that you can share with us? Well, obviously, Garden Organic, we're, um, we've got a new CEO there, a Fiona, so I'm working along with her, and I think um, my role is to do what I do best, uh, is just to step out. I mentioned the word foot soldier. I see myself as one of those. 
I, I love to be out and about. I just spent, you know, all this week talking to people I've never met before and had a great time with them through the vehicle of gardening. That's my strength. I intend to do more of that, really. I would like to get back on the tools a little bit later if I could, just as a gardener. As I come to the end of my career, I would have no problem sitting on a mower again. or you know, I just wouldn't, because I know how much, you know, when I'm in that space, I just love that space. So that may be where I'll end up finishing up. But in the meantime, I'll be at Malvern. I'll be school gardening. I'll be doing stuff with apprentices. I'll be doing stuff in the community. It's all going to be, yeah, uh, foot soldier stuff. Do you have a bucket list of things that you'd still like to sort of tick off sort of professionally or, or personally? Yeah, I thought a bucket list would be interesting. I mean, in my ideal world, I'd end up having a park I could run, you know, with a few gardeners, I suppose. It's been difficult for me to think about... A lot of stuff happened to me that never I thought would happen. So I kind of, I do have this feeling of my peaks, really. Where do you go? Not at all. (laughs) So I kind of look at it that way. I think that it's my job to try and encourage other people to garden, and I'm quite happy to go down that road. Personally, I'm a massive traveller. I've been to over 60 countries. I continue to keep doing that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I love travel so much. Um, You know, I'm... I'm blessed that I come from a society that allows me economically to be able to go out and do that. So those two things will keep me happy. And then, uh, and then I'll end up on my allotment full-time, Mike. <laughs> that sounds ideal to me. Chris, it's been an absolute privilege chatting to you here today in beautiful Kew Gardens on the side of the river. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Lovely to chat to you, Mike. I had the very best time chatting to Chris about his incredible career to date. Walking back through Kew to the main gates, Chris pointed out some of the beautiful plants, including some of the conifers he referred to during the podcast, rhododendrons and lots more. My thanks to Chris for taking time out of his schedule to show me Kew and have a chat with me. If you want to know more about Chris, head over to his website cmcollins.co.uk and if you wish to learn more about Garden Organic, Their website is gardenorganic.org.uk. Well, as always, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you to all of you who have followed or subscribed to the Mike the Gardener Gardening podcast. And to all of you who've left such lovely reviews, thank you, thank you, thank you. It means the world to me. Well, I do hope you'll join me again next week when I'll be here with even more gardening banter. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.